As the, uh, the kids are going out, um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to have the Bible reading. It's from 1 Samuel, chapter 11, and we're going to read from verse 1 through to 11. So if you've got your Bibles or smartphones, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, and you'd like one, there are some out at the welcome table. Feel free to go and grab one if you need one. 1 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 1. Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will be subject to you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, replied, I'll make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen, and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah, 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Morning, folks. Nice to be with you. My name's Mark. If I haven't met you, it's really nice to have you here with us. Uh, we've got a special guest uh, with us to, today, Jess. Jess Pratton uh, up the back. Many of you will know Jess. Jess used to be a member here at WBC. She's now living over in Perth, working with YWAM, uh, and she's come back for a visit, and so it's a great opportunity for us to catch up with Jess, hear about her ministry, find out uh, what God has been doing through her work and the work of YWAM over there. Jess is hanging around at WBC today, and so if you'd like to catch up with Jess, she would love to chat with you. Uh, she'll be around the foyer. Go and say good day. Encourage her in her ministry. That'd be a wonderful thing to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we will have a think about 1 Samuel 11 and 12. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. I uh, thank you that it is a light to our path. I uh, thank you that every word in this book in front of us and on our laps and on our screens is spoken by you to us for our good. Uh, so please do good to us as we read. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, your football team, <clears throat> whoever that is, it's got a new coach. The old coach got fired. You've got a new coach. And it's now day one of the new season. There you are at the stadium. You take your seat. 
the team takes the field, what are you feeling? What's, what's, that, what's that emotion going on inside of you at that moment? Your work gets bought by another company. Your old manager is gone. You've now got a new boss, new CEO. You've never met them before, but it's Monday morning. The new manager's going to be there. You park in the parking lot of your work. You walk out of your car, put your hand on the door to your workplace, take a breath before you go in. What's that feeling that you're feeling at that point? Your church has just employed a new pastor. You never met the guy before, but, well, this is the Sunday that he's going to be here. And so as you walk in the front door of church, your eyes are scanning the crowd, wondering, who is this guy? And before you can meet him, there's that feeling again in your stomach. What is that feeling that you're feeling? If you've been in any of those kind of situations, you'll know what that feeling is. There's a nervousness, right? An an anxiousness, perhaps even a little excitement, trepidation, perhaps, kind of a mix of all these things. Because at those points, those, those times of transition, so much hangs in the balance, doesn't it? For an organisation or a group of people at that point. When a new leader comes in, everybody wants to know, what is this new leader going to be like? Are they going to be any good? Are they going to lead the team to premierships? Are they going to lead uh, the organisation to record profits? Are they going to lead the church to whatever the measure of success is for a church? Or are they going to be a failure? What is this person going to be like? Because as this new leader is, so will probably go the organisation. Times of transition are absolutely crucial. Uh, As we approach 1 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 today, Israel is in a time of transition. They have just appointed their first ever king. A really significant moment in their history. We saw that last week in chapters 8, 9 and 10. Do you remember that? We met Saul, uh, the unlikely first king of Israel, the Fabio of Israel. Beautiful, tall, good-looking man who gets selected to be Israel's king, the king that they ask for. Uh, But when we get to chapter 11, we're still not quite sure what this is going to mean for Israel. There are some questions kind of left lingering in the air about whether this man is going to be the right man for the job. Do you remember right at the end of chapter 10 last week, there were some very significant questions asked. Chapter 10, verse 27, some scoundrels said, how can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts. And so from day one, this new leader comes in and Israel is divided. There are some who are optimistic and some who are decidedly pessimistic about what's going to take place. And so what we are going to see in chapters 11 and 12 today is Saul's first outing as king. What is his first order of business? Because it's going to set the tone for the rest of his kingship. What is it? Well, as we come to chapter 11, actually, can I ask somebody to come and turn the air conditioning off in this? Because my Bible is going to give me trouble all sermon otherwise. Thank you. Uh, As we approach chapter 11, uh, we we come face to face with a crisis in Israel. Uh, The crisis meets us from verse 1 of chapter 11. Let's take a quick look at the story. Uh, Verse 1, Nahash the Ammonite. Here's some shady character that gets introduced to us. If you knew Hebrew, uh, you would automatically be sceptical of this guy uh, because the name Nahash literally means snake. It's the word for snake. And if you know anything about the Bible, snakes usually don't get a good rap in the Bible. They're people to be sceptical of. And so here is Nahash the Ammonite. The Ammonites are the enemies of God's people to the east. And so picture Nahash. He's a guy probably with you know heaps of facial tattoos and he's missing a few teeth and he's got bruised and bloodied knuckles. And here he comes besieging the town of Jabesh 
Gilead, which is sort of on the eastern side of Israel. It's an Israelite town in the tribe of Manasseh. And we've met Jabesh Gilead in the story of the Bible before. We met Jabesh Gilead actually right at the end of the book of Judges. If you remember back at the end of the book of Judges, there's some horrible things that are going on. And Israel comes together to punish the evildoers. But Jabesh Gilead don't join in. They're too chicken. They, they don't join in the punishment of those who've committed evil. And so all of Israel actually turn on Jabesh Gilead and wipe them out as well. So Jabesh Gilead, it's not a popular place. If you're from Jabesh Gilead, people look at you a bit, bit through the side of their eye. Most people's opinion at this point, when the enemies of God's people arrive to besiege this town, to starve it out, to wipe it out, most of Israel would have said, well, good, they're getting what they deserve. They're not really part of Israel anyway. Just, just let the enemy take them. And so what happens? Nahash comes and the men of Jabesh Gilead, verse 1, they just wave the white flag immediately. They say, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. And Nahash comes back with a counter offer. He says, I will make a treaty with you, but on the condition that I get to gouge out the right eye of every person in your town and so bring disgrace on Israel. That's a, a cruel and vindictive thing to say, isn't it? The, the logic there, in case you're not want, sort of tracking what's going on, uh, Nahash knows that if you gouge out the right eye, that person can no longer fight in battle. Ancient battles, you carry your, sword with your, left, uh, your shield with your left hand, your sword with your right. So if you don't have a right eye, you can, sit, you can defend yourself with your shield, but you, you can't attack anybody. People without right eyes are no good in battle. They're still very helpful economically, though. They can still plough a field. They can still generate an income. See what Nahash is doing here? It's a very strategic kind of a move. Jabesh Gilead, they're, they're, kind of, they're not quite ready to give up hope just yet. Uh, they do still hope for a hero to be able to perhaps come and rescue them. And so what they do is they send out messengers out into Israel to see if anybody can come to their aid. Now... That's the scene. What does a new king do in a situation like that? Day one on the job, here comes the foreign enemy, crisis time. What does the new king think? He thinks opportunity. This is my opportunity to step up, to show Israel what I've got, and to lead them properly, right? This is, this is a kind of a good thing, perhaps, for, for Saul to have this opportunity here. And so perhaps this is going to be a story of Saul rising to the occasion, of Saul being the hero that Israel really needed all along. And on one level, that's kind of what happens, isn't it? You, you get to verse 11, the end of this story, and Saul has mustered all of Israel, and they've headed over to Jabesh Gilead, and they've killed the Ammonites, completely wiped them out, freed them from this threat. I mean, it Saul looks pretty good in this story, doesn't he? Saul kind of looks like the hero, right? Well, if you take a very cursory glance, maybe, but if you pay attention to the details of this story, Saul does not come out looking so good. So let's go back through this story with a little bit more of a fine-toothed comb and let's actually see whether this is a story about Saul being the hero or not. Have a look at verse 3. Verse 3, the elders uh, of Jabesh, uh, when, when Nahash comes to them and says, I'll pluck out your eyes, uh, they say, what, what should they say at that point? What should be the response of God's people when an enemy comes to them? Number one, they should cry out to God, shouldn't they? That's what they always do. Number two, you would think at this point, they probably should call their king. <laughs> Remember the king that they made like a few verses earlier, the king they asked for, they've got a king, a king that they asked to lead them into battle, 
but they don't think to call him. It's curious, isn't it? And even when the word of this threat reaches in verse 4, the town of Gibeah, see how Gibeah is introduced? It's Gibeah of Saul. It's Saul's hometown. When the people who are Saul's neighbours hear about this threat, what do they do? They don't go, oh, well, we know Saul down the road. He'll take care of this. No, they just collapse in a heap of tears. Even Saul's closest people around him don't think to look to him to solve this problem. This is a massive vote of no confidence in Saul, isn't it? And then have a look at the way that Saul is introduced in this story. King Fabio, he just sort of stumbles into the story, doesn't he, in verse 5. We're told that Saul has been out working in the fields, uh, which is a bit of a strange thing for a new king to do. What, what do you think a monarch should do after they've just been coronated? Do they head back home and go and work on the farm? Well, that's probably not what they should do. They probably should have matters of state to attend to, ruling, judging, liberating, etc. And, and notice there that small detail that verse 5 tells us, that Saul was behind his oxen as he walked into the town. That's not a throwaway line. Do you remember when we met Saul back in chapter 8? What was he doing? He was on the hunt for some lost donkeys, chasing after them. Here in chapter 11, he's still following behind some animals. This time it's oxen. For Saul, not much has changed between when we first met him in chapter 8 and now in chapter 11. Yes, he's been made king, but he's still behind the animals. He is supposed to be the man who's leading Israel, and he's being led around by animals. That's what the author is trying to show us. It's a curious kind of an introduction to Saul, isn't it? He's not very king-like. He's not very decisive. He's not the man for the job, really. And you notice in, in verse 6, when, when Saul finally does sort of uh, put down his plough and get to action, it's not because he had the conviction to do it. It's not because he had the courage to kind of lead Israel. The whole story turns on verse 6 when the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul powerfully. And Saul, we're told that he burns with anger. It's this, this righteous anger, this indignation that this foreign enemy are about to do a cruel and heinous thing to God's people. And so what's going on here is, is that God's spirit is the one who is working. Saul's passive. Saul's just the, the vehicle for God to work through. It's the spirit of God that makes Saul put down the plow and pick up the sword. So see what Saul does next. He butchers his oxen. He rallies the troops of Israel. And again, do you notice that it's God getting the credit here, verse 7? It's, it's the terror of the Lord falling on the people of Israel that make them come together. It's not because Samuel has given them a really good battle speech. It's not because people want to fo- Saul, rather. It's not because people want to follow Saul. It's the terror of the Lord falling on God's people that makes this happen. God is the one who is acting here. So verse 9, the messengers get sent back to Jabesh-Gilead with great news, literally with a gospel, with news of liberation, deliverance, rescue. By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. And the people of Jabesh-Gilead are elated. And so that's exactly what happens. They get rescued, the threat gets removed, they get their hero that they didn't deserve But it's not Saul. Saul's not the hero here. God's the hero. 
God is the one who is delivering his people. That's the thing that this story is trying to show us. That's the point this is trying to make. God is the deliverer. And so do you realize what's happened at the end of chapter 10, the question that some people are asking, how can this man save us? God has given his answer here. As the blood of the Ammonites seeps into the ground, God has said, this man cannot save you. I can. I'm the deliverer. Look to me. You know, that much seems obvious even to Saul himself. Saul has got the point. Uh, let's have a, keep reading in the story from verse 12. This is after the battle has been won. The Israelites, they come together and they go, who was it that asked, shall Saul, Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. Right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Everybody's really clear now that Saul's the one that can lead Israel. But what does Saul say? Verse 13, no one will be put to death today. For this day, the Lord rescued Israel. Saul gets the point. He's not the deliverer. God is. Now, you, you have to, uh, we have to give Saul credit here. Okay? Saul got this right. Uh, Saul does not get many things right in the book of 1 Samuel. As we go on uh, over the next few weeks, it is a pretty sharp, steep downhill from this point for King Saul. But you do have to give him credit here. He knows the truth that God is the one who delivers his people. And so that's the first outing of King Saul. What do you make of it? Yay? Nay? Is this a good thing for Israel? Has Saul provided success or is Saul a failure? It's actually a bit hard to tell from the way the story is written. It's deliberately ambiguous. We're not quite sure what to make of Saul yet, what the implications of a king like this are going to be for the people. And so the story of chapter 11 ends with the prophet Samuel gathering all of Israel together and taking them to a place called Gilgal. And Samuel is going to speak to them at Gilgal. All the nation gathered together. And it's, it's kind of, chapter 12, Samuel's speech, is essentially a commentary on what we've just seen happen in chapter 11. Samuel is going to offer the interpretation of what we've just seen happen. Uh, back in uh, 2016... Barack Obama uh, attended his eighth and final White House Correspondents' Dinner. This is a dinner put on by the White House and the administration staff for the journalists who cover uh, the news of the White House. And uh, because this was his eighth and final year as President of the United States, Obama took this opportunity to take some shots at people, <laughs> at some of his political rivals and at some of the, uh, the journalists sitting there in the audience that night. Uh, he, he, he just fired bullets left, right and centre for about 30 minutes. Uh, in, if you remember at the time, uh, the new election was taking place, all the stuff with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, this whole crazy, crazy uh, media cycle was going on. And in kind of a nod to that, Obama said, you know, eight years ago, I said it was time to change the tone of our politics. In hindsight, I clearly should have been more specific. And again, he, he made these comments on, on Republican candidate Donald Trump. Obama said, uh, there is one area where the Donald, uh, his experience could be useful, and that is in closing Guantanamo Bay. Uh, Donald knows a thing or two about running waterfront properties into the ground. You know, taking shots like this because he's on his way out. He's going to say his piece, and literally at the end of this 30-minute monologue, he drops the microphone and walks off stage. Well, in a, in a similar although less sarcastic way, uh, Samuel is going to speak his piece in chapter 12. He is going to drop the mic and exit stage right, making sure that Israel understand just what he thinks and just what God thinks. 
And so the first thing we're going to see in Samuel's speech in chapter 12 is an accusation. Samuel is going to accuse Israel of something terrible. Let's have a read from verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and grey, and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Can you picture the scene? There is, there is the whole of Israel gathered at Gilgal with essentially the past and the future represented in front of them. There is Samuel and there is Saul. And it really isn't hard to imagine who the more attractive option is at that point for Israel. Here is Samuel, he's old and grey. Here is Saul, he's young and impressive looking. The old order of things with Samuel, it seems to be kind of going away. But Samuel, in this speech, he has one goal, and it's to make sure that that doesn't happen, to make sure that Israel don't move on from the old order of things. Uh, His whole speech is geared to try and make Israel just stop and realise what they are rushing headlong into and to make them reconsider. And the way he does that is he starts there in verse 3 by kind of putting himself on trial. He says, bring your accusations and your charges against me. If anybody's got anything to accuse me of, now's the time or forever hold your peace. Now, what are the possible charges? Verse 3, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I've done any of these things, I will make it right. You see what Samuel's saying? He's saying, stop to think about my leadership here. Have I I used my power of leadership in any way so as to exploit or oppress you? Have I done any of that? If I've taken from any person, I will make it right. You know, back in uh, chapter 8, when Israel asked for a king, do you remember what Samuel warned them about? He said, the king that you ask for is a king who is going to take from you. He's not going to give. He's going to take your sons for his army. He's going to take your daughters to be his cooks. He's going to take the best of your fields, the best of your crops. He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. That is such an apt description of the way that we experience much worldly power, isn't it? How many times do we see that dynamic happening around us? Worldly leaders who take And take and take. How many more stories do you think we're going to hear this year about politicians abusing their expense account for their own personal sake? How many more leaders do you think we will read about on the world stage who consolidate power to remain uh, the leader of their particular country? How many more stories do you think there'll be this year about church leaders who have exploited people for their own sinful gratification? How many more people that you work for, how many of your bosses do you think you will come across who love to take credit and to give blame and not the other way around? That's just how worldly power works a lot of the time, isn't it? And Samuel is saying here that when it comes to to my leadership, I've been blameless. I haven't done that. I have not been a taker. I've been a giver. And and Israel recognised that. Verse 4. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You've not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you and also his anointed is witness this day that you've not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they replied. See the point that he's making? This this old way of doing things represented by God ruling his people through Samuel, it wasn't broken. It was working perfectly fine. God had provided a good leader in Samuel and now they're rushing away from that? 
And so Samuel, he's, he's, he's washed his hands of guilt. He's saying that he's not to blame. And so now what he's going to do is he's going to make their fault perfectly clear for them. And so the way he does that is he gives them a quick history lesson in verse 8 uh, through to about verse 11 of uh, chapter 12. Uh, Samuel recounts some of the history of Israel from Moses and Aaron being raised up to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt all the way through the time of the judges, Gideon, Jephthah, and even through to, to Samuel himself. Samuel takes Israel on this tour of their history and he says, don't you see the way that God related to you this whole time? You were in need, and God provided a deliverer for you, and he delivered you. That should be obvious to you from the time of Moses until now. That was how God always worked. Israel was in distress. They cried out to him. God delivered them. Israel was in distress. They cried out to him. God delivered them. That's plain to see. What's Samuel's point? Well, it's coming in verse 12. This is, this is the knockout blow Samuel has been gearing up to deliver. Verse 12. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. This time, when Israel was in distress, they didn't cry out to God despite the centuries of evidence that God would be the one who would come through for them, that God would be the one who would deliver them. Instead, they looked sideways at the nations around them and they said, oh, we want someone like that. We think they will be our, our real deliverer. We'll have one of those, please. Do you, do you feel the weight of what Samuel's accusing them of here? This, the weight of disrespect that they're showing to God. Do you see the wickedness of betraying God like that, who has been faithful to them for centuries? Do you, do you feel the foolishness, to say nothing else, of, of doing what they're doing, asking for a king like the nations? Making Saul, giving Saul the keys to the kingdom is like giving the nuclear codes to the work experience kid. It's utter insanity. Saul's not qualified to save and deliver Israel. No human leader is qualified to deliver God's people like this. No one else can rescue Israel. So Samuel's accusation is cutting and it is clear that by, by choosing this new arrangement, by leaving Samuel behind, by rushing towards Saul, what they are doing is looking for another deliverer and they're betraying God. And it's pretty easy for us, I think, to read this story and to, to point our finger at Israel to kind of tut, 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 what a poor mistake they've made here. But I think before we, before we sit in judgment over Israel, we have to put ourselves in their place because the truth is that that's a mistake that we make as well. This, humanity makes this mistake time and time again, looking for another deliverer. You know that that's true, don't you? There are plenty of people in this world, and I'm sure that there are people who are present here today who do not look to the Lord's anointed king, to Jesus Christ, to be their deliverer. They, their opinion of Jesus is the same opinion of Israel towards Saul. How can that man save us? Not interested in Jesus. No, he's got nothing to offer me. Plenty of people think that way about the Lord's anointed deliverer. And if that's you, can I urge you this morning, please, to hear Samuel's words of warning, that it is utter insanity to pin your hopes on anyone other than the Lord Jesus. 
that he alone is God's rescuer. But you know, um, even for those of us who are Christians here, for those of us who, who do call on the name of Jesus to be our deliverer and our rescue, it is so easy for us to, to kind of look for, uh, to pin our hopes on humans and on human institutions other than God. Think about this. With all of the problems that exist in your life at some level, personal problems, family problems, uh, community problems, national problems, global problems, all of the problems that you face, how often is it that you turn to God to be the solution for those things as your, as your first instinct? When a, when a crisis looms in your life, where do you turn? Who's going to deliver you in that moment of, of trial, of stress, of struggle? Do you know, this was brought home to me pretty clearly this year as we went through our most recent national election cycle. Uh, I, uh, I found it very hard to know who to vote for in this election uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but what I observed in a lot of Christians this election cycle was something I think that came dangerously close to pinning their hopes on a particular political party. I observed that there was a danger that many Christians were in of assuming that a conservative government would be our deliverance, would assure our safety, our security, our prosperity into the future. Regardless of how you voted, can I tell you that that mistake is the mistake of the Israelites? It's the mistake of thinking that anybody other than the Lord God will be your hope, your deliverer. Samuel's making a very clear point here. The Lord is your refuge. The Lord is your strong tower. The Lord alone will be your deliverer. And so to look to anyone or anything other than him, it's betrayal. And we ought to feel the weight of those words, of the mistake that we make when we don't look to God. We ought to feel that because, friends, it's going to make what comes next all the more amazing. In the, uh, the final part of Samuel's speech here in chapter 12, we're going to see God's incredible offer to Israel. Uh, have a look there in verse 19 of chapter 12 to see God's offer. Samuel's confronted them with their own guilt and wickedness. And what do they do? Well, they do, they do the right thing. The only thing that you, you should do at that point when you see that you've betrayed God, they repent. Verse 19, the people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for us, for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins this evil of asking for a king. It's, it's so interesting in that verse that they realise that they have forfeited their right to call Yahweh their God. They don't say, call out to our God. They ask Samuel, call out to your God. They realise what a wicked thing it is that they've done, that their sin was against God. God. Do you know, friends, that you can actually tell the depth of someone's repentance uh, based on who it is they're afraid of? Have you observed that? Uh, when somebody is caught in their sin, when somebody is found out, if, if all that they fear is losing human approval or the, the cost, the, the damage that it's going to do to their life or whatever, that's just shallow sorrow. But the minute that you realise, no, my sin is against God, and it's God's forgiveness that I need, well, then that's, that's true repentance, and that is absolutely life-changing. Because wonderfully, almost breathtakingly, as soon as Israel acknowledged their guilt, 
God speaks to them of his grace. Verse 20. Do not be afraid, said Samuel. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they're useless. It's such a stark contrast, isn't it? Samuel's just accused them of doing the most wicked thing in all of Israel's history, abandoning God, choosing a different king. And the first thing Samuel says to people who repent, he says, don't be afraid. What? They've got every reason to be afraid, don't they? They ought to be wiped out for this wickedness. How is it possible for them to be anything other than terrified? Well, you see, it's because Samuel knows that God makes this incredible offer of mercy to these undeserving people because there's something greater at stake, something far, far greater. Have a look at verse 22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. Israel had essentially brought herself to the brink of disaster, but in the final analysis, her future actually rested on something utterly reliable, on God's promise to save a people for himself. It was God's concern for his own name, his own reputation. That was what ensured that God would not forsake his people. It was a bit like, if you remember a few years ago when during the GFC, all of the, oh, several of the banks collapsed and governments around the world had to step in to kind of rescue these banks, to prop them up, to make sure that there was not some global economic meltdown. Why were the governments stepping in? It wasn't because the banks were deserving. It was, it was for the sake of themselves, for their, for their own nation's sake, for the reputation of their country. That was why governments stepped in to do that. Can I say it's in a similar kind of way, God will not let his reputation be trampled upon and be destroyed even by the wickedness of his people. God had promised them and God would keep his word to save a people for himself. And that is incredibly good news. Incredibly good news for Israel. And friends, it's good news for you too. I wonder if you've, if you've come to terms with verse 22 with the incredible claim that God is making in verse 22. God says, for the sake of his name, he will not reject his people. Can I spell it out for you? That what, is, what God is explaining here is that he's in the business of vindicating his own name. What this is saying is that everything that God does is because God is radically committed to God. That, that is a completely universe-reorienting reality for you to, to, to grab hold onto. Everything that God does is because God is radically committed to God. Now, that's, a, that's a, a big statement for me to just throw out there, and you might have lots of very justified questions about that, and I'd be very happy to talk to you about them afterwards. Can I suggest as well, if you want to ask some questions, we've got the podcast text line. You can text in your questions uh, to that number and we'll answer them throughout the week on the podcast. But let me finish today with just one implication for us. So I think this makes all the difference. If, If everything that God does is because God is radically committed to God, then that means, friends, that the foundation of God's love for you is his commitment to his own glory. The foundation of God's love for you is his commitment to his own glory. Do you know, 
the Bible tells us in countless ways from cover to cover that God's love for you does not depend on anything to do with you. It doesn't depend on you being lovely or lovable. It doesn't depend on you doing anything to merit God's love, to earn his favour. That's not why God loves you. It's, God doesn't love you even because, well, God is just kind of overflowing with love and that's how it happens. He just sort of showers his life. That's not why God loves you. It's because God is in the business of proving himself to be glorious. That's the foundation of God's love for us. That is what the Apostle Paul says about the reason why God would send his son to die on a cross. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. What does it say? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this. Why? Why did Christ go to the cross? Why did he die for you to save you? Why? To demonstrate his own righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. You see, God's commitment to being seen, to be glorious, that is the reason why he sends his son to deliver you. That is the reason why God saved the undeserving town of Jabesh Gilead. That is the reason why God gave a second chance to wicked Israel when they had rejected him. And it's why he offers grace and mercy to you day by day to anyone who will turn back in faith to the Lord Jesus. It's his commitment to his own glory. Isn't that freeing? God's love for you does not depend on you. That's good news, I think, that ought to make us elated. So if you've been looking to any other deliverer, then, then do hear Samuel's accusation. No one else can rescue us. Not even the most impressive-looking king, king can be our deliverer. God alone is mighty to save, but don't be afraid. See God's incredible offer here. There is, there is mercy for anyone who will turn in faith to the Lord Jesus. God will not reject his people for the sake of his glorious name. Let me pray for us. Almighty God, we just have the sense today that your ways are not our ways. And that you are so far greater and so far beyond our comprehension sometimes that it is staggering. And yet, God, what you show us of yourself here, we are so thankful for. We are so thankful, Father, that you offer mercy to the undeserving and it's not because of anything that they've done, but it's because you are committed to, to showing your glory to this world. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, so that your righteousness would be vindicated. God, I pray for my friends here this morning, please, where, wherever every one of us is at, please would you show us the Lord Jesus. Show us your love to us in him and your glory through him. And please turn our hearts to him in faith. Pray in his name. Amen.